We have been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, so I invite you to turn there to chapter 6 today. Paul has given us, um, he begins the little book that we've looked at a long time ago uh, with the, the idea that we are to be who we already are. If we placed our faith and trust in Jesus, that we are rescued by God's grace through his son Jesus. And if we have been rescued by God's grace through his son Jesus, that we are, that we are to act like what we are already declared to be. We are declared to be sons and daughters of God if we have placed our faith and trust in him. And so we are to act that way. And so the rest of the book, after that first introduction in chapter 1, is all about acting in a way, in a manner to which we are already called to be. And so he compelled the church and compels us as well to pursue unity, to pursue unity with each other, that we're not to be divided following this camp or this speaker, teacher, this, this idea that we are united under the cross of Jesus and that we're united under the wisdom of God, his word. So we need to choose to grow up, to choose to be mature, to choose to, choose to not follow simply the, poli- the political thing. That we also are to remember that all of us are simply servants of Christ. That in and of ourselves, whether we're, we've got great titles and positions like Paul the Apostle, or we're just simply a brand new believer in Jesus, that all of us are simply servants of Christ. The next section that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, and we'll continue this week and in the next, is a section on morality. All right? How do we live if we are united together under the cross and, and the wisdom of God that we're choosing to grow up and to mature and, and to pursue um, holiness because he is holy. How does that affect each other? How do we interact with each other? Part of the problem with the church, one of the many problems at the church at Corinth was they just didn't get along very well. And, and it manifested itself in a number of different ways. So for example, last week we talked about being moral with each other when it comes to finances and lawsuits with one another. And that we are not to take each other to court. That we have within us the ability to, to deal with financial issues and matters amongst each other and stop suing each other. And the, and the church at Corinth, because of the, the culture that they were raised in, was, was much more litigious than even our society. They sued over every, absolutely everything. And, and, and Paul said, listen, stop living that way. I know that's acceptable with the culture, but it's not acceptable with the church. That We need to get along. We're going to continue this idea of morality today. We're going to talk about uh, the subject of sex. Now, my kids will probably be embarrassed, and that's good. It's good for them to be embarrassed today. Um, they don't like it when their mom and I talk about this, but it is what it is, and the Bible talks about it, so we're right where the text leaves us off today. Perhaps no other topic can cause fascination and fear than the subject of sex. Of course, we live in a very highly sexualized world. I don't have to describe it. We understand that. Pornography is absolutely everywhere, from over-the-air television to Internet to our phones. Both men and women struggle with it, though it is usually the men who get the rap. It's just marketed differently to both sexes. Adultery and sex outside of marriage has been a problem from the very beginning. But now... We celebrate it in our culture. We euphemize it. We euphemize it by calling it a hookup or stepping out or a meaningless fling or a one-night stand. The Bible calls it simply what it is, adultery or fornication. The confounding thing when it comes to sex in our culture is this, is that it has both made careers like the Kardashians and it has destroyed careers like Gary Hart. It has sold everything from tires to airplanes It is much talked about and much avoided like the plague. Back and forth we go as a culture, from prudishness and and unwillingness to talk about it to libertarian and refusing to shut up about it. How are we to think and act in this setting? Fortunately for us, the Bible talks at great lengths about sex and the proper view we should have about it. So if we are to be who we are, we live in a very immoral society. The church struggles with it as well. And fortunately for us, the Bible addresses it. Sinful choices can destroy marriages, and sinful choices can also destroy churches. Unfortunately, there are a great many churches and ministries that have been shattered 
by poor choices. There have been nations that have been brought down because of sex. There certainly have been homes that have been destroyed over this subject. So I want us to consider how to be moral in an immoral world of sex and lust. Now I'm going to keep it as PG as I can, but I'm going to talk about it as the Bible addresses it. Begins in chapter 6 and beginning in verse 12. Paul says this, he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. I want to begin a little bit, back up just a little bit, and, and think uh, what are some other passages, draw some other passages in here about what the Bible says about sex. And it's going to be a rapid trip. I don't know if I'll read everything. I may just have you jot some things down. And, and, and this is extra. This is extra on above. And so hopefully you've got enough white space if you want to take some notes. He begins with this phrase, all things are lawful for me. Or your Bible version might have, everything is permissible for me. Now, you might say, what, what does Paul mean? Does this mean that we can do whatever we want with no consequences? Or does he mean something else? And, and part of our problem that we have here is this. As we translate from one language to another, we oftentimes miss some nuances that are going on. And one of the nuances that we miss here is this, is that Paul is most likely quoting from a common phrase that the Corinthians would have said on, a, on an almost everyday basis. Everything is okay. Everything is fair game. This was the, the philosophy of the, the culture of Corinth. It was not Paul's philosophy. So Paul is taking a phrase from their culture and he says, let's unpack this. So let me just put this in my vernacular. Let's unpack this. Let's examine this and let's see what this really means. Is it really true that all things are lawful for me, but yet not all things are profitable? Most likely, this is, was a common quote. And we know this because in both Stoicism and in Cynicism, which are both Greek philosophies, there are very similar phrases almost word for word from this phrase. And so it, it seems as if Paul is taking from these philosophies, which by the time Paul is writing are some six to 800 years old already and would have been very much acclimated into the culture of the Corinthian culture. And he's taking these phrases, and th this phrase, by the way, will later be adopted by the Gnostics. It's a, a $10 word, the Gnostics, let me just synthesize it down, were people that, that believed you could do whatever you wanted with the body because the body was kind of a throwaway thing. It was, like, it was almost like it was a, a disposable container that you get from the grocery store. You use it and throw it away. You don't think about it. And so Gnosticism basically kind of developed later on in the church of this idea, well, the body is just the body and who cares what you do with it? It's the spirit that really matters. The spirit is what saves us. And so, it was, which Gnosticism is just an ancient repackaged Greek philosophy from both Stoicism and Cynicism. Today, we would kind of phrase it a little bit this way. We'd say laissez-faire if you're French, or whatever will be, will be, a little bit more 1950-ish uh, you know, vernacular, or today it's more about having a good time. It's all about you. It's about you having it your own way. The Greek culture that, that Corinth found itself in was an extremely hedonistic society that reveled in its sexual license. This was some of the, the, the ethic, the sexual ethic of, of the Corinthian Greek culture. Wives, we're celebrating mothers today. Well, in, in the Greek culture, wives were for simply bringing forth offspring alone. Okay, you got married because it was a means for you to bring an, an heir about. And so marriage was simply uh, the bringing together of two equals. You found a, a family that was equal. You didn't love the woman. You just had her because it was convenient for both of your families to, to arrange this marriage and bring you together, and hopefully there would be an heir that would continue both families' legacies. But wives were not for pleasure. Wives were for simply producing offspring. And once she did her job, she was usually put aside. In this culture, religious services and community, community events incorporated prostitutes of both sexes. It was a common thing to engage in prostitution. Now, even in, in our day, as liberal as, as, as our culture is, there still is a, there still is a, a, you know, a, a taboo against uh, prostitution. Yet in this Greek culture, they were much more even hedonistic than we were. Probably a little bit closer to Las Vegas than certainly how we live today. 
where whatever happens, happens, and it goes, whatever goes, goes. It was a highly mobile society where they would use sex and they would use the, the, the bearing of offspring as a means of moving upwards in a culture. And so if you wanted to, to progress, you, you married someone above your class and your status and you had, had an heir amongst them and, and, and you would be able to move up that way, but you would also be able to move up through selective use of prostitution and association with them. Because in this culture, while, while prostitutes in our culture oftentimes looked down upon, in this culture they were actually elevated. Because they were the keepers of secrets. They were the ones that knew who did what with whom. And, and so there was, a, there was power that came with the knowledge that the prostitutes had. And so to be on the in crowd, you had to be with the in prostitutes who could connect you with the secrets that could help you move up in this highly mobile society. And this is the kind of culture that the Corinthian church found themselves in. And so you could imagine that that as parents raising up kids or as husbands and wives in this culture, trying to navigate, what are we supposed to think about this? How the world thinks about what is just and right will always counter God's view, always. What the world says is good, God says is evil. What God says is, is evil, the world says is good, and vice versa. Let me ask you this, just in your own thinking, where, do you, where did you get or where are you developing your sexual, sexual ethic from? See, we all have one. We all, have, we all think about it. We may never talk about it in public, but we all think about it. Parents, from a young age, It is our responsibility as moms and dads to present God's view of sex to our kids. Now, does that mean that when they're three or four that we give them all the information? No. That God wants us to be measured and to to deal with our children in a mature fashion to the ability that they're able to handle it. But if we just simply allow the world to teach our kids what the view of sex should be and we wonder why sexual ethics in the church are the way that they are. The truth is, is that while it may be embarrassing at times for us as parents to deal with these subjects, it's not embarrassing for their peers at school or on the bus or on the playground to talk about these things. And the few minutes of embarrassment for you are going to have to be countered by the hundreds of hours of input they're getting from television, in the internet, and from their friends, and from what they observe. Parents, it's incumbent upon us to help our kids form a proper sexual ethic. The church can't be silent either. Sometimes we, we allow, it's uncomfortable, who wants to talk about it? So, so what we do is we allow society to have all the conversation. And they have it. It doesn't matter if you're watching a sports show, if you're watching a, a comedy, if you're watching a movie, a documentary. It's everywhere. They tell you, the world wants to tell you how to think. But the world will never understand where we are coming from. And so it's important for us to say, what does God say about human sexuality. In Christianity, many come to this subject, even in churches like ours, as is something unfit for Christians to talk about. Well, I don't want to talk about it. We'll just use that in a small group or have the men talk about it and the women talk about it. But let me just think, up, think with you about the Word of God and, and how God views sex. Song of Solomon is one of the most sensual of ancient literatures. If you were to compare the Song of Solomon to almost any other erotic poem of, of ancient times, you, you would be amazed how much more graphic the Song of Solomon is than almost any other book. So what is it? A book to avoid? I've never preached through it. My hat's off to someone who wants to try it. What is the Song of Solomon? Well, it's a poetic retelling of courtship and then marriage between two young people. So why is, it in, why is it in inspired scripture? Why did God include it in here? Now some see it as, as kind of a metaphorical God's pursuit of Israel or even later of Jesus' pursuit of his church. I don't think it's that at all. I think it is wistful Solomon looking back to what should have been but wasn't. I think Solomon died with many regrets and the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Song of Solomon were both written to warn his own children of how it should be done, not how it was. That he lived and learned. Proverbs 5 is a balance between immoral and moral love. Just keep your finger here. Let's look at Proverbs 5. This is one of my favorite chapters in, in the book of 
in all of Scripture. It's powerful. Proverbs chapter 5, the first 14 verses deal with the seduction of the seducer. My son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech, but in the end she is as bitter as wormwood. And he describes the, the enticement of a young man by a seductress. But you know, it's easy for us to say, oh yeah, see, it's the woman's fault. No, because many of you women could attest of pressure from, the, from, from men of being seduced as well. And so while Solomon here is using a, a metaphor of a young man who's seduced by a woman, it doesn't matter which, which party is which, that it's possible for all of us. And, and he says, listen, we need, to, we need to run from those things. And then verses 15 and following, what we have in comparison here is we have 15 to 23 is God's design for sex. So what, what Solomon does is the first 15, first 14 verses, he says, listen, the world's view of sex is wrong. It is destructive. It will destroy you. It will ruin you. And then he, he says, I'm not going to leave you out there with a negative. I'm going to finish it off with a positive. So he says this, verse 15, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed to broad streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind, a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. He watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of for lack of instruction, and the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. And what we have here, that, that last verse, by the way, I think is designed for us parents. That if we don't teach our kids, they will end up in the path of destruction. And so it's our responsibility to compare the way of the, of the adulteress and the seductress to the way that God has designed marital relationships to be. I think it's a wonderful chapter that Solomon has, has carved out here. What about how God originally designed it? Well, we find God's original design in, in Genesis chapter 1. On the seventh, uh, sixth day, God created Adam and Eve. In 26 through 31, God said, let us make manage, man in our own image. So God created him in his own image. He created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God says, I've given you everything. God, God saw all that he had made, verse 31, and behold, it was very good. He expands upon that in chapter 2 where the description of God bringing Adam and Eve together. God said, it's not good, verse 18 of chapter 2, for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. And the man gave names to the cattle. And so the Lord... But for Adam, there wasn't a found a suitor or a helper for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And he slept. When he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh of that place, the Lord fashioned into a, into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought it to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I think it's fascinating that the first reaction that Adam and Eve have in chapter 3 after, after taking the fruit that didn't belong to them was shame. Shame and nakedness. Why? Well, because it was a corruption of all that God said was good and his and right. And as soon as they, they took what didn't belong to them, all of a sudden there was shame that was introduced into, into the, what God had said was good and right. A couple other uh, verses real quickly in, in, in Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews 13 and verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. It means to be uncorrupted. How do we corrupt it? Well, by sharing it, by mocking it, by abusing one another. There are a number of ways that the marriage bed can be corrupted, but, but God said it's to be held in honor, that we're to elevate it, to celebrate it, we're to, to se stop celebrating like our culture does what is wicked and sinful, but to celebrate and honor marriage. It's right, it's good. A couple other verses for you to jot down just for sake of time. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8, Paul, as he's writing to the church in Thessalonica, tells the, the church there that we are to control our own bodies, that we're not to be driven like an animal. 
All right? And a lot of times, human sexuality today is just, it's just animalistic. It's just, you know, we treat each other poorly, and it's, it's, and it's depicted poorly. We're, not, we're to, to control our own bodies, to not be driven like a, like, a, like, a, like a wild pack of dogs. It's not just biology. It's more than that. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 to 14, right after he's talked about the role of government and, and our obedience to it, he, he talks about the seriousness about our sexual ethic, that we are to honor one another. In one other passage, you can jot this down, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11, he says here that our, our sexual ethic, what we do will never make sense to the world. If we don't sit down and think through our sexual ethic, we will be caught unprepared when temptations come. God has given us all we need for life and godliness in this book, if we would just study it and learn it. Think, if you would, about Joseph and Potiphar's wife. You, you're probably familiar with that Old Testament story where, where Potiphar's wife wanted to seduce Joseph. She wanted him, and, and, and she one day caught a hold of his jacket and, and pleaded with him to come lay with her. And you remember he ran from her and left her jacket there. He was prepared to flee immorality. Why? Because he knew it was wrong. He didn't have time in that moment to debate it, to think about it. Should I, should I analyze this? Is this right or wrong? No, he just simply ran away. The only way we can get to that point when temptation comes to be prepared for it is to think about it beforehand, to be prepared. As parents, we've worked with our kids to say, listen, temptation is going to come. You're going to be confronted with things that you don't want to see or you're going to be embarrassed about. But, but I want you to know mom and I are here to talk through these things. And the Word of God has addressed these issues. So getting back to our text, Paul gives us four very vital questions, and these questions I think are so important for us. These questions can become a test for all of life's decisions. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Let me just give you these questions. I think these are vital questions for us to, to think through, and it doesn't matter whether we're dealing with sex or we're dealing with food or, or, or jobs or what have you. The question number one is this, is it beneficial? Is it beneficial? My version here, the NASB, has the word beneficial as profitable. The word in Greek means to be uh, to be to an advantage of. So whose advantage? Is it profitable? Is it beneficial? But who's Whose benefit or advantage are we thinking of? Ultimately, it's for us. But in reality, it's directed towards God. The question we ask when we conduct any activity in our life is this. Is this beneficial or advantageous to God or not? What are the benefits of, personally, to us, of thinking and acting properly about sex? Well, first of all, there's no unwanted pregnancies. There's no guilt. There's no shame. There's no embarrassing conversations to have with a future spouse. There's no unwanted costs when we do things right. There's also the added benefit or advantage of learning patience to truly enjoy what one has at the appropriate time. The world says, take it now. Take what you can now. You never know about tomorrow. God says, have patience. I'll give you tomorrow. The gift that we, God has given to us of, of, of sex is a special gift that we give to another. And that gift is this, unshared intimacy. Unshared intimacy. But the gift of, of sex between a husband and wife is a gift of unshared intimacy. Now we can be intimate and friendly with other people. It does not mean that we're standoffish to everybody else, but the gift of intimacy, human sexuality, God has given to a husband and a wife is to be unshared intimacy that no one else has. You know, the phrase, we can't put toothpaste back in the toothpaste tube once we squeeze it out. And for some that ship has already sailed. And you think, well, what do I do now? Maybe I've made poor decisions. Maybe there's things that I've engaged in or practices I've engaged in. How, how do I, what do I do with that? What I'll say is this, that you can covenant from this day forward to be intimate with one alone and no other. We don't have to be defined by our past, even if some of our past has a, a series of, maybe a whole bunch of poor decisions and poor choices. That we can say that from this day forward that, that I'm intimate with my spouse alone, that there's a special intimacy with, with my wife that, that I share with no other person. 
And I don't come close to it with any other person. What is the advantage? Well, the advantage ultimately is for God, but there is multiple advantages to us. Question number two is, does it control me? Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. The word mastered here is a, it's a really powerful visual word. It means to be enslaved or overpowered or mastered by something or someone. To be enslaved or overpowered or mastered by someone or something. We all recognize that sin does that to us. Sin always begins by looking attractive. It looks like, oh, this is a, this is a safe risk. This has lots of upside to it. Uh, you know, if I can get away with it, n- no one will be, you know, the worst because of it. But sin, when we allow it to blossom and to grow, always ends in death. Now, some sins are easier to identify because of external transformation. So many is, is hooked on some of the harsh drugs that people get addicted to in our culture today. They can have some physical de- uh, deformations that happen. You know, they, their skin can change, their teeth can change, they, they can you know, age beyond their, their own age, and we say, wow, that's somebody who's controlled by a substance. There are other sins that are easier to mask. But the truth is, is that all sins are ugly on the inside. And God looks at our hearts. And there are a lot of people that are bebopping around the world thinking, whoo, I got away with that business trip. Whoo, I got away with looking at that stuff. Whoo, I got away with... And, and there might be a whole series of things that, that they're living with their family and, and it's living a lie. They've, they, they've, they've hidden over it. The reality of it is statistically, statistically in this room, I know that, that many, both men and women, struggle with pornography. There's also a percentage of you that are struggling with infidelity. Both you either acted on it or you've thought about acting on it or you're barely hanging on from acting on it. Statistically, I know that's true because sin just works in all of our hearts and our lives that way. It enslaves us. It overpowers us. It masters us. Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. And the truth is, is if you struggle with, with sexual sins, you know that it is perhaps one of the most, if not the most, overpowering, enslaving, and mastering of sins that is out there. Question number three, does it fulfill the God-incorporated design for my body? Food is for the stomach, the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them if the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. What does he mean here? Well, question we need to ask her, question is, third question is this, does it fulfill the God-incorporated design for my body? Why did God make us the way that he did? With the urges and, and, and drives that he has? What was his intention in all of this? Is it just for us to do whatever we want with it, to let it control us? What does he want me to do with this body that he has given to me? How should I treat this body that's been hand-designed by him? Psalm 139 tells us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that he designed you the way that he designed you for a purpose and a plan. And the body that God has given to you has been designed not for you to do whatever you want with it, not for you to, 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 uh, to flaunt it, not for you to, to make all kinds of poor decisions for it, but God has a purpose and a plan for creating you the way he created you and giving you the body that he gave you. Now, we, you may not like your body shape or style or type, or you may not like your hair, you may not like something about it, but this is what I do know. The Psalm 139 says, God made you exactly the way he wanted to make you. And the question I think we need to ask ourselves when it comes up to our sexual ethic is, is doing what I want to do right now, does it fulfill the God-incorporated design for my body? The fourth question is this. Does it bring glory to God who has purchased my body? Not only has he designed my body, but he's also redeemed my body. He's bought it back. What did he buy it with? What was the purchase price? Well, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, it was the precious blood of Christ. He purchased us with his blood. As a side note, I know a lot of our, our girls deal with self-image issues today. Listen, self-image is, is, is not just a, it's not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. The only self-image that is worth of anything is this. The value we have is not in what sees us in the mirror. Right? The value we have is in Christ who gave himself for each of us. Our worth is, is not 
because we could or could not be on the cover of some magazine. Our worth is based on Jesus Christ who died for each of us. No other person, not even myself, can give me value. I can't give myself value. Only God can give me value. And the reason why I think our culture is dealing with self-image issues and self-worth issues is because we have voluntarily removed ourselves away from God. We're, no, we're just higher evolved monkeys. There's not much value there. If we're just biological products and we flush babies down the, down the drain. Our value is because of who God is. The truth is that men will say anything to penetrate a girl's defenses. Look at the story of Amnon and Tamar. And the Bible says that the love he had for her before he took her and raped her, that the hatred he had for her after was greater. Why? Well, it was because he had no value in her. Because he didn't see her not only as just his sister, but also as, as, a, as a child of his father and of a child of God. The value that we have is this, is that our value is because we've been purchased. I am not my own. I've been bought. So the question I ask is, what will I do with me? Right, the question we need to ask ourselves, what will I do with me? Is what I'm doing bringing honor and glory to him? If we were to ask ourselves these questions, these four questions, every time we went onto the internet, every time we interacted with somebody that's not our spouse, every time that we were tempted to flirt or tell a dirty joke or, or whatever it is as we think of our sexual ethic, if we were to ask ourselves these questions, it, it would probably stop 99% of our problems. What we do with our bodies matters to God. Now, he goes on. God has not only raised up <clears throat> the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. What we do with our bodies matters. Don't assume that God's silence is God's acceptance. There are a lot of people that kind of go in that, well, God hasn't said anything to me directly. God is not silent about what is acceptable or what is not acceptable. Okay? God has clearly explained his views on human sexuality. So we just, have to, we just choose what we want to believe, unfortunately. Well, that was, that was a first century belief. Oh, that was for the Jews. Oh, that was for somebody else besides me because God just wants me to be happy. That's our choosing what we want to believe instead of saying, no, God says that adultery is wrong 100% of the time. God will give us space to make choices, but he will not give us space from choices' consequences. We may think that we get away with it, but his spirit and our conscience remind us that we didn't. Don't assume that God's silence is God's acceptance. Perhaps some of you are living with guilt, guilt over decisions that you've made or, or activities that you've engaged in. That's God's spirit saying, listen, I, I didn't accept that. That's not okay with me. If the body did not matter... And this is the, the question for those that would, would fall under more Gnosticism. Then we had just do whatever you want. It doesn't really matter. If the body did not matter, why was Jesus resurrected? If we were just going to simply get spiritual bodies, he could have just simply, whoop, Jesus goes up and he gets his spiritual body, and he, and he, but his body was resurrected. Remember the question Thomas had? Well, let me put fingers here. And Jesus said, hey, give me something to eat. Let me eat. You want to touch me? Go ahead and touch me. I'm real. His resurrection, of course, is our own hope. To what will we be resurrected? We'll be resurrected to a body like his. So what will be the nature of that resurrected bodies? He says in verse 13, foods for the stomach, stomach for the food. God's going to do both away with both. So what does he mean there? What, what, will, what is he talking about here? Well, let me, I, this is my, my interpretation here. The need for food will re, be replaced with the joy of food. Right, the need for food will be replaced with the joy of food. Why do I know? Well, because there's food in heaven. There's a great banquet feast. There's stuff going on. It's centered around feasts and food and what have you. On this life, we need to eat. Right? You don't eat, in about 40 days, you'll die. Unless you're really compromised, it'll be less than that. All right? Just like if we don't drink water in about three days, we'll, we'll die. 
We need these things. They, they are necessary for life. There's going to come a time, though, where, where our new spiritual bodies are not going to be driven by the needs. What Paul is saying here is, is that there, there seems to be this element within us, this physical need, biological need. He said, listen, that's, that's going to be done away with. Today, our biological needs drive much of what we do. But there, in heaven, our needs will not drive us. But we will worship and serve. That's what will drive us in heaven. Jesus said that there will be no marriage, no intimacy uh, from a husband and wife because intimacy will be based upon our relationship to Christ and one another, not a need to reproduce or connect or belong. So heaven's going to be different. And you say, well, am I going to be married in heaven? Well, there'll be an intimacy that will be available to all people. Now, for us, we think intimacy, we think sexual intimacy, but that's not, Jesus said, there's, there's no need for that in heaven. We will be like him. We will have bodies that will be recognizable and useful. God made us with bodies. If they did not matter, he could have made us like the angels. If the bodies that he had given to us did not matter, what we did with them, he could have made us spiritual beings. He already had a pattern for it. It would have been easy enough for him to do. God made us with our bodies, and what we do matters. When we mark up, cut, pierce, do we consider that they don't belong to us? When we are driven by our bodies instead of putting them under subjection, who is in charge of whom? It is not the bread's fault or the ice cream's fault that you weigh too much. It's not the internet's fault that you watch pornography. We are to control ourselves and what we allow our bodies to do. We can't say, well, I can't help myself. I grew up in a bakery. We are responsible for what we do. God will hold us accountable for what we, will do, what we have done in our bodies. Not only will he hold us individually accountable, but what we do with our bodies matters to the church as a whole, the body that God has placed us in. Verses 15, 16, and 17 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is, is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Individually, we are members of one another and together members of Christ. Right? And so it's, it's more than just about you individual. We, we like thinking about rugged individualism as Americans, but, but the reality of it is God places us in a body and we are not only accountable for, for each other, for what we do, but we're also accountable for each other. Romans 12, verses 4 and 5. For just as we have many members in one body and all members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And this picture we have in 1 Corinthians, Paul seems to be going back and forth between one body, our, our own individual bodies and the one body of the church. What God has joined together, we cannot separate. So what does that mean? Well, it means this, that we take Jesus along with us in whatever we do. Whatever we do, wherever you go, whatever you say, whatever you ingest, Jesus is right there with you. And I remember as a kid kind of having this idea, well, you know, I hope I'm not getting in trouble when the Lord comes. And I hope this doesn't happen, you know, if the Lord comes. The truth is, is, is that, that Jesus has, has never left us. You get this idea, it's almost like he's up there, he doesn't see what's going on. He doesn't know what I'm watching. He doesn't know what I'm looking at. He doesn't know what I'm thinking about. He doesn't know who I'm interacting with, who I'm flirting with, who I shouldn't be. He, and it's almost like this idea that, that he's just an old guy up there and he's kind of clueless. Kind of like when you're a teenager and you think you're getting away with everything, like parents don't know what's going on. Right? And, and that's almost our view of, 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 of who Jesus is. But the truth is, is that he's with us all the time. He's promised to never leave us nor forsake us. But not only do we take Jesus with us wherever we go, but we also take each other along in whatever we do. Because God places us in a body on the earth called the church, and so what you do affects all of us. He says this, um, he says, shall I then take away members and make them a member of a prostitute? He says, may it never be. That may it never be is as strong a Greek negation as you can make it. God forbid. May it never happen. What we do in the flesh has consequences that can continue. 
We can find forgiveness, but it does not negate those choices. So Paul says, don't even go there. Well, sexual sin is not the worst sin. It perhaps has the most damaging long-term results. I think there are probably a number of reasons why. And Paul kind of talks a little bit about this. and He talks about making members of ourselves and joining with one another and what God has separated, we shouldn't, or what God has brought together, we shouldn't separate. First of all, sexual sin involves all the senses and the soul. Sexual sin involves all the senses and the soul. This is, this is why it can sell absolutely anything and it can impact us at a gut level when we've been betrayed or when something else has happened to us. Sex is more than an animal drive or an impulse or biology, but it is spiritual as well. It's spiritual unity, a spiritual intimacy that comes between a husband and a wife. And so Paul says, why would we bring somebody else into that equation? It probably has destroyed, sexual sin has probably destroyed more lives than any other sin besides the sin of unbelief and idolatry. Solomon says several times in the, in the Song of Solomon, he says, do not awaken love until it is time. Why? Because when it is awake, it will torment us the rest of our lives. The home is the basic building block of society. The evil one always attacks here first and strongest. I think this is why we see the decimation of our inner cities. They're a mess. Uh, we might, if you're, you know, if you're a Republican, you blame the Democrats. If you're a Democrat, you blame the Republicans. But, but, but I'll just blame the devil. Inner cities are a mess because dads have been absent in inner cities for almost 60 years. That's three generations. Babies born out of wedlock, inner city, 70%. Couples used to stay together, at least for the kids' sake. We'll put up with each other long enough to get them through high school. Not anymore. The, inner, the home is a basic building block of society. And we, as we see the rise of sexual sins in our culture and we see the decline of morality in our culture, they go hand in hand. There's a reason why. The home is a basic building block of society and the evil one wants to attack here. And he will in your life and he will in the church as well. God's standard when it comes to sexual sins is to run fast and far. Flee immorality. Flee immorality. Flee means to run away from imminent and deadly danger. Imminent and deadly danger. The word in the Greek is a present imperative. It's a command. The idea is this. Keep running and don't look back. Remember Lot's wife who looked back? God said, listen, I want you to run from Sodom and I don't want you to look back. She looked back. Don't stop to argue. Don't rationalize it. Don't try to be compassionate. Oh, I feel bad for him. Oh, you know, he's, he's like a puppy dog. His wife doesn't love him. You know, he's just, he just wants a friend. Oh yeah, her husband, you know, he's always gone. She, you know, she's got needs. And in our mind, we begin to rationalize sin. We begin to rationalize our own personal choices. Well, I won't harm anybody. No one will know. It's just a little bit of thinking, a little bit of thought life. Don't stop. He says, flee from it. Immorality is a generic term encompassing all sexual sins, from simple lust to adultery. He says, flee from all of it. It's like, it's like a little poison. You know, it's still deadly, that little poison. I mean, it's just a little bit, just a little bit of arsenic. All right, it's not so bad. And yet it's just deadly. When I was in the army, and some of you were in the army, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the things that we learned was to establish a rally point. If you were assaulting a position, you always had a place to fall back to, a safe place. That if things went south and the enemy began to overwhelm and the command for retreat was given, that you knew where to go, even in the middle of confusion, where to, where to rally together. A rally point in the army was when danger was overwhelming and, and you didn't slowly walk to the rally point. Right? You didn't say, take your time. Oh, you know what? I'll pick some flowers, take them to my mom. No, when it was a command to retreat, you ran for your life because there was hot metal coming at you. 
And hot metal in our spiritual lives is sexual sin. And it's coming at us. And, and, and too often, I think, we, we take our time. We walk slowly away from it. You know, We know we should set some defenses up. We know we should have some accountability partners and some people to keep us on the straight and narrow. We should be honest with our spouses and we should, we should talk to our kids. But you know what? It's, it's just a little show. It's a little this. It's a little that. A little poison here, a little poison there. And before you know it, we find ourselves absorbing, like Lot's wife, the culture of our day. So he finishes off with this thought. We're to glorify God with our bodies. He says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Since sexual sin penetrates to the soul of a person, its corruptions go to the deepest parts of a person. From my anecdotal experience, that many cases of depression, anxiety, fear, physical illness are rooted oftentimes in sexual sins. Sometimes they're committed by that person. Sometimes they've been committed. Uh, sometimes it's it's been committed against that person. great cases of it. It penetrates to our very soul, our very core. It's not just something that we're biologically driven to and we could walk away from it and forget it as if it never really happened and and we're okay, I'm okay, you're okay. Let's just ignore that issue in our life. Our bodies are God's dwelling places. If we have placed our faith and trust in him, His spirit is given to us at the moment of belief. We don't have to ask for it. We don't have to plead for him to come and live amongst us. The Bible tells us that at the moment of belief, that his spirit indwells us. It it comes and resides within us. He is present everywhere, yes. But you and I are made as special vessels of his when we place our faith and trust in him. Yes, he is absolutely everywhere from the highest of of heavens to the lowest of hells. God is present everywhere, but we are made aware and filled with him in a very special way when we place our faith and trust in him and become his children. So where you go and what you do, you do in his name and in his presence. You might hide it from your spouse. You might hide it from your kids, your employer. You might get away with it in this life. But he sees it all. We, you and I, are to bring glory to God with all that we do. Sex and marriage is a God-honoring and holy thing. He said it was very good. It's right. It's honorable. Sex outside of marriage is always offensive and a corrupted thing. Always. No exceptions. There's no gray area here. God very clearly tells us how to live. And you may say, well, yeah, but, you know... They didn't have the internet. They didn't have oh, Corinth. Trust me, Corinth was much more corrupted than we are. It may be hard for us to, to imagine it, but it was. And Paul said, listen, we don't have any excuses. We're to be who we are. We're children of God. We are temples of his Holy Spirit. We live in a world driven by our most base and animalistic biology. We think we're sophisticated and modern, but we're just as foolish as the most primitive of tribes. The church must work through these issues of what is right and what is moral. Our bodies are not our own. They belong to God. In a marriage, they are given to our spouse and to no other. We don't allow anyone else to come in. All immorality, including pornography, is offensive to a holy God. He says flee immorality. He didn't say just flee adultery. It doesn't say just flee fornication. He says flee immorality. It's that broad term that we've talked about, porneia. Whatever we, whatever we must do to set a guard and flee immorality, we must do. In fact, Jesus says radically enough in the Sermon on the Mount, if, if you've got to cut your arm off or poke an eye out, do it. He was being radical, obviously, and, and, and perhaps even being hyper, uh, uh, um, uh, hyperbole, hyperbolic. There we go. But the, the sentiment is still the same. Right? Whatever it is, because it's imminent and deadly danger. It's not something to play with. It's not something to rationalize. It's not something to feel, oh, well, she likes me. Oh, it's nice to have attention from another person. It's nice to this and that. No, we need to run from it. Use the four questions about everything in life. Ask the question, is it beneficial? 
Does it control me? Does it fulfill my God design, incorporated design for my body? Does it bring glory to God who purchased me? You know, God loves us. God gives us great gifts. God gives us wonderful gifts. But we still have to use them in a right way. God will bless us and honor us if we will. The culture may think we're weird and strange and out of touch. But you know, we're not going to stand before them and give them a reckoning and accounting. We're going to stand before God. And that's the only one that's going to really matter when it all comes down to it. Let's pray. Lord, you know the world that we live in. It is in our face. It's prevalent. This philosophy, this worldly sexual ethic that's out there. Lord, help us to develop a godly moral view when it comes to sex. To not be ashamed of it, to be afraid of it, to talk to our kids about it, but, but to think biblically about it and to honor marriage and the marriage bed to elevate it and say this is a great and good thing that God has done. But also, Lord, to flee from all immorality. Lord, it is so easy to get into patterns, self-destructive, self-deceptive patterns of thinking that things are okay and shows are okay and, and, and activities are okay and a little flirting never hurt anybody after all. And, and yet, Lord, it is poison. It is destructive. So, Lord, Help us to be holy. We can't do it in our own strength. It can't be just, uh, I'm going to try harder today and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but it needs the empowerment of your Holy Spirit who lives within us. It needs brothers and sisters in Christ that will hold us accountable and say, I think you're slipping here. And in humility to say, yeah, we need you to work in our hearts and our lives. Lord, I don't know what yesterday brought and the rest of our past lives brought, but I do know this, that we can begin afresh anew today. Perhaps there's someone here, Lord, that is struggling with these issues, that needs to make some things right with their spouse, that needs to establish a better pattern and routine at work or at home. Lord, I pray that you give us the courage and the strength to do it, that we would flee immorality, we would recognize how deadly and dangerous it is. And then, Lord, in humility with one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, encourage each other on the faithfulness and help find forgiveness with one another. I thank you for our day as we go home and celebrate our moms and think about them. I just pray that you would just be honored in the rest of our day. And, uh, and uh, Lord, we thank you again for today. In Jesus' name we pray.